Good morning. Welcome to St. James. I'm glad that you guys are here. Welcome to everybody who's watching on the live stream. I'm going to do a couple schedule things here real quick. So today, everything's normal. We've got a worship service this morning, and then Bible study and Sunday school right after this. So please join us downstairs uh, for that. Uh, we're talking about eschatology, which I'll, I'll mention in the sermon a, a little bit today. And that right after Bible study at 11.45, we are doing uh, the questioning for our confirmands for this next group of uh, youth confirmands. And whoever wants to come to that is uh, more than welcome to do so. It'll be down in the basement, and we're basically just going to ask them about the basics of the Christian faith and find out uh, if, these, uh, if these guys uh, believe in Jesus, want to believe in Jesus. And um, then, after that, they're going to be confirmed on May 22nd, which May 22nd is going to be kind of a busy day around here. Youth confirmation is going to happen in the service on May 22nd. We're also going to honor um, our seniors uh, before they, uh, for the school year ends and they head off to college. Also on May 22nd, and I'll talk to you more about this later, we're going to have a ministry fair downstairs. I think there's a lot of people who uh, want to be involved and want to serve and maybe not really a super great idea of exactly where they would fit in or uh, what would be an appropriate thing for them to do. And so what we're going to do is we're going to have a ministry fair where the different uh, deacons and deaconesses in the church are going to like, I, I actually don't know what they're going to do to make it, what, what it's going to look like, but they're going to present kind of their ministry and uh, have conversations with whoever wants to talk to them, of you guys, about what it looks like to serve uh, on their teams. And so, and lunch will be provided, that's going to be May 22nd, more on that later. Um, this Wednesday, I did not announce this last week, and then... Uh, I just messed up. I didn't announce it, and then we had kind of a low turnout. Uh, we're back doing the uh, Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis Bible study, or I should just say the Great Divorce study, on Wednesday evenings at 7. This happens on Zoom. This week we're going to be reading chapter 8, so if you're in the group, read chapter 8 in preparation for it. I'll send out um, like a uh, study guide beforehand so that uh, guide our discussion throughout that. And then um, if you aren't involved in that group but you want to be, um, let me know. I can, I can shoot you a link to the Zoom uh, meeting where we'll be talking about uh, Chapter 8 of The Great Divorce. Okay, one more thing, and then we'll jump into worship, and that is uh, the attendance, the guest books there that, uh, at the end of your aisle. If you could take those and if you could fill those out and you could pass those down so the, the rest of the people in your aisle could fill, that, fill those out as well. Also, if you'd like... There's a QR code on the back of the bulletin that has a link to do an online attendance. So if you'd like to do that, or if you're watching on live stream, for those of you who are watching on the live stream, if you could do that as well, that would be great. Okay, go ahead and stand with me, and let's sing the first hymn. What tongue could tell my Savior's love? What song of angels could describe? Could endless praises be enough to echo his, his sacrifice?
Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Let's confess our sins to God our Father. Holy, 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 you are, O Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of your glory. Your holiness frightens us. It fills us with awe. It fills us with wonder. What else can we do but fall down before You and confess our woe? We are lost. We are a people of unclean lips and unclean thoughts. The light of Your holiness only reveals the darkness of our sin. Holy, 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 You are, O Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of Your glory. Your holiness is white hot, converting our sin. Send your seraphim to us with burning coals from your altar that our guilt be taken away and our sin forgiven. Holy, 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 you are, O Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of your glory. Your holiness is frightening, all-consuming. Sanctify us to your service. Make us holy that we might be your people that we might reflect Your glory and serve You forever. In the name of Jesus we pray, whoever stands before the altar of heaven, our Mediator, who presents before Your holy majesty our prayer and supplication, now and evermore. Amen. 
Because of Jesus, God has forgiven all our sin. Hear the gospel of Christ from 1 John. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant. For to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Let's read Psalm 30 together. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from shale. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face, I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You've turned for me my mourning into dancing. You've loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. reading from Acts chapter 9. This is uh, Saul persecuting the church, experiencing Jesus on the road to Damascus, and then repenting and turning in faith to Christ. 
But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise, go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Paul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. Laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me, so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Isn't this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And hasn't he come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priest? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Revelation chapter 5. Then I saw, this is an apocalyptic vision that John is having about Jesus. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. So the secret at the heart of human history is locked up. And nobody has the authority to, to release it, to make it happen, to make it known. And so John begins to weep loudly, verse 4, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. 
And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that's in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, let's have uh, Elliot come forward now, and we'll have uh, baptism. Whoever's holding Elliot, stand right here. So uh, baptism, we've been having a lot of baptisms lately, so I've been saying a lot of things about baptism, and I'm not going to say too much this morning because next week uh, I'm going to preach about baptism and we're going to talk about baptism in the service, but I do want to say just right off the bat that um, in case anybody's wondering why we would do something so like primitive and pagan as a uh, uh, put water on somebody and announce the names of the Trinity and assume that that does something. I mean, there's a couple answers to this, and again, I'm going to get into this next Sunday. But one of, the, one of the reasons why we do this is because God tells us to do this in his word. Jesus says, go and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this is how people get plugged into the body of Christ. This is how people receive the gift of faith through the word of God, which is in the water. And so Elliot's coming forward this morning and his uh, friends and family, and he's going to be baptized. Elliot Hinkhouse received the sign of the cross on your forehead and on your heart, marking you as one redeemed by Christ the crucified and risen. And one of the things that's really awesome about this right now is that Elliot's passed out asleep. This, honestly, this has nothing to do with Elliot's choice or Elliot grasping the deep fundamental things of the faith or Elliot's commitment to be a better person from here on out. This is all about God's choice to choose Elliot. And Elliot, whether he's awake or whether he's asleep like right now, is, is God's child, just like all of us are. It, it comes from God. If it depends upon you and your understanding or me and, and my commitment to Jesus, that's, only, that, 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 that's up and down, right? And when I'm asleep, it's not there at all. I'm you know, thinking about food usually is what I'm dreaming about. Elliot's asleep right now. God has chosen him. God is making him his child. He belongs to him, waking and sleeping. It's an amazing gift. One of the things that we do with baptism is we ask parents and godparents questions because this isn't some sort of like magic ritual where you put water on somebody and say a few words and then bingo, instantly, you know, 
the, the magic happens. There's like this a glow happening around them. Neither is it some sort of rite of passage where, you know, it's historical. We baptize our babies, and so it's nice to do this. It's a nice stage in everybody's life. What this is, is it's one stage in a process of Eliot's lifelong being connected to the Word of God. God gives us his Word in a bunch of different forms. Eliot's going to read the Bible someday when he can read. He's going to hear sermons. He's going to hear lessons. He's going to hear friends and family teach him the gospel. He's going to be brought to church. Baptism is another way that the Word of God gets applied to him. In a few years, he's going to come to the rail, and he's going to receive the Word of God in bread and wine form. It all comes down to the Word of God. This is just another way that God gets his word into and onto Eliot, this time in water form. And so we ask the godparents and parents this question because we want them to make the commitment and understand that this is a part of a lifelong journey of knowing and loving and learning from Jesus, not just a one-off thing. So let me ask you guys some questions. I ask you, parents and godparents, do you renounce the devil and all his works and all his ways? If so, say yes. And do you believe in the God who's revealed to us in Scripture in whom we confess in the Apostles' Creed. If so, uh, everybody stand here. I don't think, the Apostles' Creed is not in your bulletin, but it is in the back of your hymnal. And sorry, I did not warn you guys that we were going to be saying the Apostles' Creed, so you can follow along as best as possible. All of us, let's say the Apostles' Creed together as a faith commitment that what we believe is what Elliot believes, and he's joining with us. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You all may be seated. In light of Jesus' command not just to baptize, but also teach everything he commanded, do you promise to bring Eliot to worship with the gathering of God's people, teach him the commandments and the promises of the gospel, and pray for his spiritual growth? If so, say yes. May God help you to do this important work so that Eliot will be faithfully brought up in the arms of Jesus. All right, you want to lean him over? He's going to pop awake here, isn't he? That's good enough. Elliot Lee Hinkhouse, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's a rude awakening. May God, who's caused you to be born again of water and the Spirit and has forgiven all your sins, strengthen you with his grace unto life everlasting. Amen. All right, we're going to sing Jesus Loves Me to Elliot. I'll bring you back, I promise. Jesus loves me.
preserve your going out and your coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. Go in God's peace. Amen. You guys may be seated, and we're going to sing the sermon hymn. Gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 24. This is a following on the two texts that we've read the past couple weeks. Uh, you remember last week the two disciples on the road to Emmaus meet Jesus. Uh, 
their knowledge of him, their eyes are open to recognize Jesus through Jesus telling them the story about himself from the Old Testament and through the breaking of the bread. They rush back to Jerusalem. The disciples are like, we don't know what's going on, but some of us have seen him too. And that ha- this is what happens next. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see that I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, so there's still that disbelieving and they're marveling, but it's starting to mutate into the shock of the joy happening. They're starting to process this. Jesus said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it bef- and ate before them. So, so Luke giving us this just bit of like earthy, sort of mundane. The, the guy was eating fish. He's clearly not some sort of like vision or, or ghost or some sort of supernatural appearance. It was Jesus. It was Jesus with uh, the guy who likes fish. Uh, verse 44. Then Jesus said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You're witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. This is the gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. So, um, as I said, a couple weeks ago, I pointed this out. In Luke 24, Luke 24 is just this fantastic story of the disciples, Jesus' friends, going from, uh, you know, sorrow at Jesus being dead to confusion because he's not there and they don't know what's going on, um, uh, 
to more confusion. They meet him on the road. These two disciples meet him on the road to Emmaus and uh, tr- trying to process what it means. This guy's telling him, hey, that had to happen. He had to die. What does that mean? The Messiah had to die. Messiahs are supposed to do the killing, not get killed. Jesus, like I said, uh, Jesus reveals himself to them through his word and through the breaking of the bread. And then here they get Jesus in person, the whole lot of them together, and they know who he is. And so um, this is the last week we're going to talk about this story from Luke 24. Luke 24 didn't end here. There's like uh, three more verses, but it's about the ascension. We're going to come back to the ascension in three or four weeks and talk about that in here. But for right now, let's just wrap up the discussion of that first Easter Sunday. And I want to do it this way. Um, It's kind of like a journey. It's like if you were, it's uh, maybe a better analogy is if you were going to climb climb a hill or a mountain and you didn't know what was on the other side, but you have this sense that this would be worthwhile climbing this hill. Some of you do this. Some of you like to mountain climb and uh, hike and stuff like that. And there's this process of like figuring out what this mountain is about, what this hill is about as you journey up and you stop every once in a while and take a look off of the, you know, the, the lookouts where you're at. And then you get to the top and, and you understand this is, this is what this was all about. I can see everything from around here. But then there's the journey back down the other side where the hike, like it comes to its culmination. Maybe a better example is this. It might be more like like uh, being in like a real intimate relationship, right? So you meet somebody and they're kind of special and you don't know them that well, but you have this sense that this person, this could be something special between us. And so you, you start to meet them and you're starting to get to know them and it's all started being confirmed to you and it's all leading up to this moment where, you know, you seal the deal, you, you, you get married, say, and then that's great. You've, you've climbed the summit. You've gone from like learning about what it's about, figuring it out to saying, okay, this is it. Now me and this other person are married. But then there's the whole other side of the hill where you spend the rest of your life living kind of in the light of being married. Maybe not the rest of your life because people die, break up and stuff like that. But it changes everything about you. You know, like where you're going to go to school or your job, uh, the hobbies that you have, the people that you hang out with, it's all affected by that experience of getting married. Easter is kind of like that for us. And in Luke 24, you get all of these. You get this journey to the top, which we'll talk about in a second. You get kind of the climactic moment where Jesus comes out of the grave. And then we're sort of introduced to the rest of the, the denouement. Now that Jesus has been raised from the dead, what does it mean for us? And in the story that Jesus tells in the Bible, it kind of gets focused here in Luke 24, and I'll show you what I mean. So there's the first few chapters. There's the chapters leading up to Easter. There's the climactic moment of Easter, and then there's the denouement chapters. There's the, 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 the rest of the chapters where the heroes already won, or the, the, the lovers have already gotten married, or the battle's already over, and now you kind of figure out how things fall into place after that. And that's what we have here. So first of all, let me talk for a few minutes about the opening chapters of the resurrection story, which don't happen here in Luke. It happens in time immemorial before this. And I'm not going to spend too much time on this because I talked about it last week. If you have uh, more questions about this, uh, go re-listen to the sermon from last week. But Jesus references it again in verse 44. Look down there with me. Jesus said to his disciples, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. 
And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. The entire history of the world leading up to this moment right here has been preparation for this Easter event. Everything that was written in the law and in the prophets and in the Psalms, everything that's written in God's story has headed towards this moment where Jesus is going to get killed and then three days later he's going to rise again from the dead. It's all a part of the plan. It's all a part of this grand narrative that God is writing. Like I said, I don't want to spend too much time on this because we talked about it last week, except just to say this. If God can write a story in which he willingly and inevitably includes his own suffering and death, certainly when you guys are going through your own sufferings and your own deaths and your own fears and your own conflicts and your own troubles, you should be assured that it too is maybe not meaningless. It too is maybe not random. It's not purposeless. It's not that the, you know, the cosmos is out to get you or that God doesn't like you anymore. Actually, God writes this massive story, and at the heart of the story, at the heart of the plot, is his own suffering and death. We can be assured that our own sufferings and death have meaning and purpose, that God has a point, that he's writing the same story. And he's connected us by baptism to his son Jesus so that what becomes true of him becomes true of us. And that means there's all kinds of good things we get. Righteousness, holiness, eternal security, but it also means that we are going to share in the life of suffering that Jesus shared too. You guys remember from the, uh, the, the Acts reading? When, uh, you know, Paul, we just read a few minutes ago, Paul loses his sight. Ananias goes to him. Ananias don't want to go to him because he knows that Paul's a punk. Ananias goes to him, though, and God says, I need somebody to tell him about all the things he's going to suffer for my name's sake. And God is telling you guys, if you're connected with Jesus, you're going to live a life of suffering and heartache. Everybody lives a life of suffering and heartache. There's two ways you can deal with it. You can say, it's meaningless, universe is cruel, God's out to get me. Or you can say, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, because of Easter, I live. These are our two options. And Jesus is saying, it's a part of the grand narrative. God is using suffering, including his own suffering. He doesn't stand, uh, he doesn't, there's not some gap between you and him where you suffer and he watches and says, sorry, sorry. I hate that you guys have to go through this, but really it's your own fault. No, God himself joins himself with our suffering too on the cross, but then rises from the dead. These are the opening chapters leading up to the resurrection story. Now we come second to the resurrection story itself, the climactic event of this story that's been building up for, since the beginning of time. that has been written about in the Old Testament. The climactic event happens here in Luke 24. Jesus dies, Jesus rises from the dead. Jesus meets them in verse 36 and says, peace to you. Verse 38, he says, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet that it's I myself. They think he's a ghost because that's what you would do, right? Like if you saw somebody that you loved who died, you wouldn't immediately think, oh, they rose from the dead. People don't rise from the dead. It's, this is one of the things that makes Easter special is that people don't rise from the dead. They think, oh, this is some sort of weird, supernatural, mythic event where we're able to see his ghost or something. And Jesus says, no. It's me, I'm standing right here. Here, here's my hand, here's my feet. Uh, give me a fish sandwich, I'm hungry. I have flesh and bones, I'm not a spirit, obviously. When he had said this, he showed him his hands and feet. They gave him the piece of broiled fish, he took it and he ate before them. So what we have here is we have a joining up of two things. This is this um, um, incredibly unbelievable supernatural event where God becomes a human being, is assassinated, and comes back to life with this sort of mundane, hey, it's just me. 
Here, you can hold my hand. Give me something to eat. I'm hungry. It's all, it's both of these things. And you can't have Easter. So, you know, sometimes we try to turn it into this like, I don't know, I'm probably talking to the wrong group here. But this sort of like, you know, mythical or metaphorical or some sort of deep spiritual, what can I learn from this deep spiritual lesson? And um, what we need to do is we need to hold on to that, but we, we also need to include within that just the mundaneness, the physicality, the earthiness, the ordinariness of a 30-something-year-old construction worker walking around. It's just right there in the middle of those two things, myth and fact. Uh, some of you guys know this. C.S. Lewis, um, Christian apologist, uh, famous for the Chronicles of Narnia uh, series and a lot of other good things he wrote. Uh, uh, we're studying The Great Divorce, which he wrote on Wednesday nights. Uh, uh, email me or text me if you want a, a link to that uh, Zoom, uh, Zoom meeting. So C.S. Lewis was an atheist for a long time. He's well-educated, uh, you know, Oxford-educated, very intelligent. Uh, didn't really have time for a lot of the superstitions of, of religion. And he studied, uh, he studied ancient mythology. He loved especially the, the, the Norse uh, ancient mythologies. He loved them. But, but of course, it was just kind of the backwards thinking of superstitious people. He himself was a 20th century rationalist. He was too smart to mess around with those sorts of things. But he realized... He was into middle age, and he realized, this is boring. Like, this is boring. Like, if, if what I believe is true, that there's nothing except for matter, there's nothing supernatural out there, life is just meaningless. I wake up in the morning, I eat food, I go to work, I write some papers, I tutor some students, I come back, I meet with my friends in the pub, we have some drinks, I get tired, I go home, you know, repeat the same thing the next day. This is just really, and then, I'm, and then I die, and I'm gone. This is really just kind of boring. There's not a whole lot to this. And I spend all my time thinking about these ancient fantasies and ancient mythologies, and those, Lewis was like, those actually turn me on. Like, I love those. Those give me hope and meaning. And then he, he became friends. He was friends for a long time, actually, with, with a, a guy that a lot of you know named uh, Tolkien, who wrote The Lord of the Rings. Tolkien was a faithful Christian. Tolkien, Tolkien was a Roman Catholic a believer, and Tolkien told them, you know, the thing about it is, is that the reason why you like the ancient mythologies is because there's something about them that's more real than your arid and dry philosophy that you're so proud of. There's something there that lights your heart up in a way. There's something there that you know is true in a deep and meaningful way that your own philosophy can't match up with. He's having a conversation one time with a scholar, a fellow atheist scholar at Oxford, whose name I don't remember, but he tells about this in his spiritual autobiography, Surprised by Joy. And they were talking about kind of ancient myths, and his atheist friend, this scholar, shocked him by saying at one point, he said, you know what, it looks like all that stuff about the gods in the ancient world, you know, like the fertility cycles in the ancient world, like Baal, Phoenician fertility god, he died and rose from the dead every year. You know, it's kind of the way that the, that the Phoenicians explained the seasons. You know, fall comes and stuff stops growing. Oh, Baal must have been killed. Then spring happens. Oh, he's come back to life. And there's really not any sort of like physical Baal, but it's a story to explain the cycle of the seasons. And, and, and Lewis's friend says to him at one point, he says, it looks like when you read the Gospels, it looks like all that stuff about a, a dying and rising God actually is true. And Lewis was like shocked, and he was like, you don't believe this stuff. And his friend's like, I don't, I don't know what to do with it. 
It looks like it happened in history. I, I don't know. I don't know. His friend never became a Christian. But he started thinking, what, what if this is true? So he becomes a believer. I'm skipping a bunch of the story here. Uh, years later, he writes, and you can find this in his uh, uh, collection of essays called God in the Dock. He writes an essay called Myth Became Fact, where he argues this, and it's really kind of brilliant. He says that, you know, kind of the superstitious amongst us, you know, back in the 1930s and 40s, you know, kind of the, the, the old ladies in England who needed something kind of like hocus pocus to trust on to get through their days, of uh, the pagans back in the, in the past, you know, the Christian church back before it became wise and rational. They believed in all these myths. We now believe in fact, and they don't believe in fact, they just believe in myth, and we don't believe in myth, we just believe in fact. And Lewis says, when you come to the resurrection, in this essay, he says, when you come to the resurrection, what you have is both myth and fact. You have myth and fact together. Here's what he says. I'm going to read you a little bit of this. The heart of Christianity is a myth, which is also a fact. The old myth of the dying God, without ceasing to be myth, comes down from the heaven of legend and imagination to the earth of history. It happens at a particular date, in a particular place, followed by definable historical consequences. We pass from a Balder or an Osiris. Balder is a Norse god. Osiris is an Egyptian god with death and birth recycles. Uh, cycles. Uh, we, we, we pass from a Balder or an Osiris, dying nobody knows when or where, to a historical person, crucified, it's all in order, under Pontius Pilate, a real live Roman political figure. By becoming fact, though, it does not cease to be myth. That's the miracle. I suspect that men have sometimes derived more spiritual sustenance from myths they did not believe than from the religion they professed. This is terrific. I, and this is, this is some of you here in this room. I, I suspect that men have sometimes derived more spiritual sustenance from myths they did not believe than from the religion they professed. Some of you confess and believe that Jesus is the risen Son of God. It don't, that doesn't turn you on, though. You know what turns you on? The Marvel movies. You know what turns you on? The Lord of the Rings. That gets you fired up. Why? Because you're getting spiritual sustenance from these myths which aren't true, and you have the one true myth right there. Instead, here's, you, should, you, should, you should enjoy the Marvel movies or whatever it is. Uh, uh, I, I don't know what, what all those are. You should enjoy the Lord of the Rings and the Chronicles of Narnia and, and fantasy literature. If that's your thing, you don't have to. But know that it's just all the superheroes in the movie, all the superhero movies in the world are just pointers to the one true myth that happened in history, the resurrection of Jesus. And Lewis is saying, don't lose those things. You're not a rationalist. Neither are you some sort of like blind, leap-in-the-dark faith, superstitious person. You are a Christian. You have within your hands, within your heart, placed on your skin with the water of baptism, you have the one true myth become fact. To be truly Christian, Lewis says, we must both assent to the historical fact and also receive the myth, fact though it has become, with the same imaginative embrace which we accord all myths. The one is hardly more necessary than the other. This is the one true myth, and it's happened here. So some of you might struggle with the whole notion of this being, uh, you know, a myth or a story. I've talked a lot in here about the story of the Bible, the story of Jesus, and, and, and I'll tell you why I do that is because I want to grasp onto this mythic quality while acknowledging that it's history. Here's the problem. If I, if I emphasize, which I did two Sundays ago, if you're that kind of person that needs kind of like rational proofs, 
Go listen to the sermon from two Sundays ago. Um, history, the word history, if I say the resurrection is history, the way that you and I as 20th, 21st century people use the word history is we usually think of like history as randomness, like random events that just sort of happen, like a tidal wave is a history, but there's not really sort of a cause to it, like historical events just happen, and there's really, you know, sort of reasons, just sort of random. You know, Lincoln gets assassinated, and one of the reasons Lincoln is assassinated is because his bodyguard decides to leave his post and go down to the pub next door and get a drink. There's just something sort of, and nobody's on guard when, Will, when John Wilkes Booth comes in. There's just something sort of random about it. That's one thing we mean when we mean history. The other thing we mean is that, the, the other school is that history is caused, it's, you know, it's determined, but it's determined by these blind laws. It's determined by these blind, law, rational laws of history. You know, Jared Diamond, the historian, wrote a book called Guns, Germs, and Steel, in which he argued that the reason why the West became prominent in the 17th, 18th, 19th, and 20th century is geography, there was coal there, and so they could have the Industrial Revolution, and so they could have the ability to make steel, which allowed them to make the Maxim gun, which allowed them to conquer the, uh, the global south. And it's just like there's these laws that are at work, but there's really nobody behind it. And so what I want to do is I want to use the word story, because story implies that there's an author, that somebody's in charge. Like when, when, you, when you sit down, like if you ever would sit down and write some fiction, you would be completely in charge of what happened to those characters. You could kill them off. You could make them millionaires. You could make them sad. You could make them happy. You would be in charge because you're the author. And when I use the word story, I'm not saying that it's not true. I'm saying it's also myth. It's also controlled from the outside. That everything that happens in your world, including the death and resurrection of God himself, is controlled from him. He is writing this story. He's making it real. This is the climactic chapter. And then finally we'll be done. The ongoing chapters in the resurrection story. Answer, let me answer the question real quick from the text. What does the resurrection of Jesus accomplish? Key verses here. Luke chapter 24, uh, verses 46 and 47. Jesus said to them, thus it's written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. That's the resurrection. What's the payout? Verse 47, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. There's two things that we get from the resurrection of Jesus, repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Because Jesus has risen from the dead, repentance and forgiveness of sins has now been handed on a platter to the human race in the person of the resurrected Jesus Christ. Repentance and forgiveness of sins. Okay, so again, it's a little bit of review. What do we mean by repentance? We don't mean in the Bible, we don't mean you giving up your like individual sins. Like some of you smoke too much, right? Some of you cuss too much. Some of you lose your temper too much. Some of you have these sins in your mind from your past where you stole from work or you did something bad to blow up a relationship. Um, and you have this, so, so sometimes you hear the word repentance and you're like, okay, I'm gonna really try hard not to lose my temper in traffic anymore. Now, you should not lose your temper in traffic, but that's not primarily what the Bible means when it says repent. It doesn't, that's not what repentance says. Repentance is turning from the path that you're on and returning to something else. Repentance just means turn. So great text here that I really love is in Zechariah chapter 1, verse 3, where God says this. I think this is super interesting. He uses the, the Hebrew word for repent, shuv, and he says this. Return to me, says the Lord of hosts. So repent. Turn from where you're at. Return to me. And he says, I will return to you. Who's repenting in that verse? There's two people. There's the 
me, Aaron Miller, and there's God. And what he's saying is this. I don't, he's not, we know this rest of scripture that he's not saying, return to me and I'm just waiting around and once you return to me, I'll return to you. What he's saying is this is, in, in the grand story that I'm telling of the repentance that I'm gonna give the human race to the resurrection of Jesus, you will find that when you turn to God, he has turned to you. When you turn to God, he has turned back towards you. Now, this is less about morality that's involved. It's less about your individual sins and more about relationship. When you will turn to God, you will find that he has turned you. In fact, I don't want to go into this right now. You'll find that he has turned you to himself. It's more like this. Angela and I had a really good friend in college, and her name's Kelly. And some of you met her. She's been here before. And uh, Angela, she was real close in college, and I was close with her too because I was always hanging out with Angela. And after college, we drifted apart. Uh, Christmas cards, you know, that, that, that sort of relationship. But they, they don't live anywhere near us, and so the relationship kind of ebbed. And about 10 years ago, I would say it's, it was about eight or nine years ago, like we reconnected. We, we, the, the, Kelly and her husband Steve and Angela and I made a concerted effort to build the relationship back again. Now, that was a repentance. We turned from ignoring them, avoiding them, or that's the wrong word, but like just ignoring them, I guess. And we turned back to them, and they turned back to us. Now, when we were deciding, hey, we should hang out with Steve and Kelly, we didn't think at all, okay, so what do we need to do? What do we need to do here? Here's what we need to do. We know some stuff that Steve and Kelly don't like. Let's really stop doing those things. That's not what we said. It wouldn't have helped us at all. Like, they, they don't like people yelling at them. So we gave up yelling. But, but there's still states away. Like, who cares, right? Actually, what repentance is, it's not you trying real hard to give up the things that you think God doesn't like. It's you actually turning back to God and reuniting with him in relationship. Repentance is actually about relationship. It's like, okay, God, I've been ignoring you. I need you. That's what repentance. Now, does that involve, like, loving him enough to obey his commandments? Of course it does. Of course, but that's not the main thing it is. And what God is giving you is a return to himself because he himself is turning back to you. God is giving you, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, a relationship with him. He wants a relationship with you. Turn back to him. Here's the second thing that it is. Forgiveness, right? Repentance for the forgiveness of sins, verse 47 says. Through the resurrection of Jesus, the great final forgiveness of sins has happened. Now, here's what I mean. And this, again, is a little bit of a review. Do you individually need to be forgiven of your sins? Of course we do. But that's not primarily what God is offering us in the resurrection. It's a symptom of what God's offering us. The main thing that God is offering us is this. I'm going to read from Daniel chapter 9 to you. This is a great prayer. Daniel's in Babylon. The the temple's destroyed, and Daniel wants sins forgiven. But Daniel doesn't say this. Daniel doesn't say, you know, God, I've been smoking too much lately, and I know it doesn't make you happy, and I lost my temper with my wife, and I know that that's really crummy, and it hurt her feelings, and I know that you don't want me to do that. And so, like, God, would you please forgive me of that? He doesn't mess around with the small stuff. He goes right for the heart of the thing. God, we all need this complete radical forgiveness that would welcome us back to Jerusalem. Here's what he says. I turn my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, 
who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We've not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. He goes on later and he says this. He wraps it up by saying this. Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. Come back and be with us again. Live with us again. Rebuild your temple. We want you to come back home to us. We need you. He goes on to say this. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in this city that's called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. What Daniel wants is not, God, I'm I'm kind of a crummy person. Will you please forgive me? What he wants is, God, act to rescue all of us. Come back home and live with us. And when Jesus says here in, in, in Luke 24, I've risen from the dead, and now the great final forgiveness of sins has happened. And he says, here, I'm, like Daniel prayed for, heal Jerusalem. Jesus says it's starting in Jerusalem, and then I want you to take it to the rest of the nations. See the book of Acts, which is Luke's sequel to the Gospel of Luke. What he's saying is this, is I've done this great final forgiveness of sins. It's wide open and it's available, and anybody who wants can have a relationship with the eternal God now because I've been raised from the dead. Two things that I want to make of this. One is, is that does mean that you individually are forgiven. If God's forgiven the world, if he's returned creation back to himself, that means that you individually are forgiven. And I know that some of you struggle with this. A bunch of you struggle with this. Some of you struggle with this with like intense amounts of guilt. Am I really forgiven? Some of you struggle with it and you like just stifle it and like, I don't need to think about that. For both of you though, I need you to know that Jesus rose from the dead and that guarantees that you are forgiven of your sins. Look, there's a bad, there's a bad brand of Christianity, which I, 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 I kind of came out of, which tends to say things like this. You cannot with your good works please God, but you can with your bad works make God really mad. And some of you live right in the middle of that. Do you see, that, you see what that position that's put you in? You can't make God happy with your good works, but you sure can make God upset with your bad works. What are you going to do? That's crushing. There's not a single thing that you can do to avoid God's wrath. And I want to say this. Jesus rose from the dead, and that means that God's not angry. Jesus rose from the dead, so that is all over. There's no possible way that you can make God mad or upset. He loves you. He's forgiven you. And when he looks at you, he sees absolute perfection. And if you say, well, how do I know that's for me? Because Jesus rose from the dead. That's how you know it's for you. The resurrection made that happen. Well, how do I know the resurrection is for me? Come back next week and we'll talk about how baptism connects us to the resurrection of Jesus. It is objective. It is concrete. Well, not concrete. It's water, actually. But it's solid and it's there and it's real and God loves you and accepts you. Second thing this means, though, is that you individually have been forgiven. But second of all, you are witnesses of these things. Look what verse, uh, this is what verse, uh, what is it, 48 says. You are witnesses of these things. Here's what it means. Now that Jesus has been risen from the dead, Now that you have experienced the forgiveness of Christ, again, you say, I don't know if I feel like I've been forgiven. Okay, forget that. It doesn't matter what you feel like. You are forgiven by Christ. Now that you've you've experienced the resurrection forgiveness of Jesus, 
you get to live that out with everybody else. If Jesus rose from the dead, forgiveness is a reality that's possible now. The new creation is here because the new creation has risen from the dead. Forgiveness is a real thing. Look, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then he's not Lord of the universe. That means something else is Lord of the universe. And you and I pretty much know what that is. It's pretty much going to be power. There's some other candidates, but power and control. Nietzsche, this is what Nietzsche says, right? Is that there's no, there's no such thing, good or evil, morality, death, resurrection, religion, secularism, none of it's real. The only thing real in the entire world is power. And that is true if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And what does that mean? And some of you actually live like this. You live like the resurrection isn't real. This is going to smell like gospel, but I'm going to, this is going to smell like law, but I, but, but I want you to hear the gospel when I circle back to it here. Some of you live like Jesus didn't rise from the dead. In other words, you live like I have to be in charge or this is not going to be good. I have to be in charge or I'm not going to be a happy camper. In other words, forgiveness is not on the table. Forgiveness means losing. If somebody hurts you and you say, I'll carry that for you, I'm going to let it go. What you're doing is you're letting them win and you're losing to rescue the relationship. And if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, that's stupid. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, the only thing that matters is power. And what I want you guys who are Christians to do is this. I want you to think about this this week. Jesus rose from the dead. That means I don't have to be in charge anymore. Jesus rose from the dead. That means I have been liberated to say, I am wrong. I hurt you. Will you please forgive me? To whoever it is that you need to say that to. Because when you do that, you are embodying the forgiveness of the resurrection of Jesus. You are actually looking like Jesus. You're making the resurrection real in the world. You are letting people know that there's a new Lord of the universe in town. And that is the resurrected Jesus who offers repentance and forgiveness to all. Amen.
Father, we praise and thank you that your son Jesus, the lamb who was slain, is worthy to open the scrolls, is worthy to be the king and lord of the universe, has by his resurrection made forgiveness and repentance a reality, has reconciled us to you, that you, Father, have turned us back to yourself and that you have turned to us. And Father, by the power of your son's resurrection, working by and with your word and your Holy Spirit, you've now made forgiveness a reality here amongst us. You've enabled restored relationships, not just with us and you, but with us and each other. And Father, would you please, I know that there are people here who are struggling with broken and fractured relationships. Father, would you help all of us to kind of sit in the mythic, factual reality of your son's resurrection so that we can experience that Holy Spirit power of that resurrection to love and forgive each other, to serve each other by giving up power to each other. To serve each other by offering forgiveness when we don't feel like it. To serve each other by uh, taking and receiving forgiveness when it's scary and it's awkward and it's humbling. Lord, make your, re- make your resurrection real amongst us through the power of your uh, reconciling Son. We, Lord, in your mercy. Father, we thank you for the gift of baptism and for uniting yourself to Elliot, for putting his mark on you, for putting your mark on him for connecting him to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
May he grow up never knowing a single day when he's not incredibly aware that you love him and that he belongs to you, Father, and that you are his and that he is the sheep of your pasture. And for all of us, Lord, help us to live in the reality of our baptism. Help us to confess that we are baptized into your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, in your mercy. We thank you for the gift of Holy Communion as we come to the rail now, Father, We thank you for giving us your word in bread and wine form, for giving us the word in bread and wine form, for communicating yourself to us in a physical, tangible, visceral way so that we can say that we have met with you this morning. Lord, in your mercy. We pray all these things because you've allowed us to pray these because you have baptized us into your son, Jesus Christ, and brought us into your throne room as his brothers and sisters and as your daughters and sons. And so we pray these things in his name. Amen. We're going to have communion in a second if you're visiting with us this morning. Just a reminder to take a look at the front of the bulletin. We have a a statement in the front about communion and what this church believes. And we invite you, if you can confess that you believe what's stated there, a lot of it is just basic Christian belief, but some of it's peculiar to our church. We believe that Christ himself, all of him is present here in the bread and wine of Holy Communion. If you confess that, you're welcome to join with us. If not, please come and talk to me, and I'll be glad to talk to you about how you can get to the place where you can understand that from Scripture. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is truly good, right, and salutary that we should at all times and in all places give thanks to you, O Lord our God, King of all creation. For you've had mercy on us and given your only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But mainly we're bound to praise you for the glorious resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. For he is the true Passover Lamb who was sacrificed for us and has taken away the sin of the world, who by his death has destroyed death, and by his rising to life again has won for us everlasting life. Therefore with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven, We laud and magnify your glorious name, evermore praising you and singing. Now let's pray together in Jesus' name, the prayer that he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always.
Amen. You may be seated.
blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ strengthen you and preserve you and keep you in the one true faith to life everlasting. Depart in Christ's peace. Amen. bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Look around, find somebody you don't recognize or maybe just barely recognize and work on building a relationship. Go in peace.